linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, we've got another long program today as I'm uh, going to finish playing that CIIS workshop we've been listening to for the uh, past few weeks. And after that, I've got uh, several announcements, including a major change in my Burning Man plans. But first, I want to thank Roman S. and Jacob P., both of whom sent in uh, very generous donations to help offset some of the expenses associated with uh, producing these podcasts. I realize that uh, times are difficult for a lot of people right now, but uh, Roman, and, and I think it's Roman, it could be Roman, but uh, Roman and Jacob, uh, you should both feel good about uh, helping these podcasts reach uh, people in over a 100 countries, which uh, tells me that we are all a part of something that seems to transcend both nationalities and culture. And to me, anything that can do that is uh, something that should be seriously investigated. Which, of course, brings me around to introducing today's talk. And uh, as I said, today brings us to the end of these recordings of a Terrence McKenna workshop that were posted on our psychedelicsalon.org blog by fellow saloner Miguel Fernandez, who joins us each week from his home in Portugal. And uh, I want to say thank you again, uh, Miguel. This was a workshop I hadn't heard before, and uh, at least to me it brought up some new ideas that uh, Terrence had that I hadn't heard before. So, uh, hey, thanks again on behalf of the whole salon for doing that, Miguel. And so we'll begin with Terrence answering a question about the difference in the quality of the experience between a 5-MEO DMT and a NN-DMT trip. And uh, yes, I have to warn you again that there is one point in here where the tape just jumps from the middle of one thought right into the middle of another. I'd apologize for that skip if I'd uh, made it myself, but that's just the way I found it. However, I don't think we uh, missed very much. So anyway, here is uh, Terrence McKenna speaking at the California Institute of Integral Studies on the first week in November, 1988. Oh, yeah, the qu- they are day and night. I mean, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, some people like it. Uh, it's a feeling, is what it's been for me. It's this huge feeling that kind of sweeps through you, and, and it's velvety, and it's... It's hard to describe, actually, but the main thing that I'm noticing when it's happening is I am not hallucinating. And, of course, the main thing that's happening with DMT is you're having hallucinations so intense, so three-dimensional, so highly colored, so sculpturally defined that it's more real than reality. And by that I mean, if you look at this room, notice how all edges are slightly feathered. There is, at all boundaries, a slight indeterminacy. But on DMT, it's hard-edged. Everything is just defined. Sometimes people say it's as though all the air had been pumped out of the room. You're seeing it with that lunar starkness and clarity, you know. And unimaginable objects, objects off the art and uh, 
entities. DMT is the only one of these psychedelics where I have seen the entities. Uh, on psilocybin, it speaks and it's audio. On DMT, it's it's um, you see these things, and uh, I don't know whether it's my personal mythology. For me, DMT is the center of the mystery. I mean, I fear it. I love it. I thank God for it. Uh, I wonder if I'll ever understand it. It takes a huge mustering of courage on my part to do it because I, it just is so... I mean, we talk, 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 change, transformation, other dimensions. This is not talk when you do that. I mean, you just do not know the parameters. I feel like I know more about what could happen to me if I'm in the Amazon jungle than I know what could happen to me when I'm in that place. And after many, many DMT trips, I've finally been able to paint a picture for myself of what is happening in there. And what happens for me, and I don't know anybody who's done it as much as I have, I wish people did it more and talked more about it because, boy, if there is a landscape where we need some consensus, this is it. I have uh, been present when people did it and they come back babbling about the same thing that I think I have encountered. I mean, they come back and... And one woman said, um, it was a carnival. It was a carnival of, it was an extraterrestrial midway. And somebody else came back and said, there were, there were gnomes, there were elves. And yeah, this is getting close to it. I mean, what happens to me when I do it is, I'm convey there's a period, an initial period of kind of hysteria and confusion. It's almost as though time speeds up, even before you take the first hit. Many people say, just before you do DMT, there's this funny kind of impression in the room, almost as though there is backwash from the event about to happen. You're caught in the in the in the psychic field of this event and everything is moving faster and faster. This is like the Q phenomenon. And then you take the hit and it's building up in your body and your heart is pounding and everything. And then you break through to this place and what it's like is there, the first impression is of a loud... Well, the first impression is of the sound of cellophane being crumpled that crackling sound as if someone had just taken a bread wrapper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crackle that cellophane for us. <laughs> That's it. More of that. Are you there yet? Would that it were so easy. Uh, a friend of mine says that's the sound of the radio intellecti of your soul tearing out of the organic envelope. 
which is what it sounds like. It sounds like your body has just been wadded up and thrown into a corner and now you're a radio signal approximately four light seconds in diameter spreading out through an alien universe and the next impression is of a cheer. It's hurrah, welcome, welcome. And it's them, and they're waiting, and they just, they can hardly wait. I mean, they, there's a moment when they're not on me, a, a, just a moment, and then they say, you're here, we're glad to see you, why did you stay away so long? And then they come toward me, and uh, the main thing for me in the DMT thing is to struggle not to go into shock of wonder, basically, I mean, because there is a tendency, a strong tendency, and for the first few trips, I couldn't conquer it. I was just, I was a victim of it. I mean, I just go into this. You know, and I would say, you know, heart, heart, okay. Breathing, breathing, okay. And I'm just, but I'm looking, and I can't believe my eyes because they're, I'm in some kind of domed place. And the impression, don't ask me why, but the impression is of being underground, even though it's a huge vaulted space and uh, highly colored. And then, but what is, of course, riveting my attention are these beings. And they're small and they're like, I've described them as uh, machine elves. They seem partially machine-like and partially elf-like. Yeah, no, they are not so mundane as that. They don't have a fixed body outline. And in fact, that's one of the things that's going on in this space that's so baffling. They come toward you. They're singing in this alien language which you somehow understand. It cannot be translated into English but you understand it in that moment. And what they're doing is they are using their voices to produce objects. And so song becomes thing. And there are dozens of these things. And they're coming closer and closer. And the songs they sing condense into objects. And the objects themselves can sing. And, and these things come and they're saying, look, look. And they're holding this stuff out to you. And you look at it and you're fighting wonder because your entire being is caught up in this can't be happening. And yet they're saying, you know, just look. And what, it, and what these things are are devices, toys, works of art, objects, but whatever they are, they are amazing. And you look into it and you can't and, and they seem to be shifting, even though they're made of metal and glass and gems and pulses, everything is migrating and shifting and changing. And they make they say, Look at this one. It's the most astonishing thing you've ever seen. And you just look at it from and they say, Look at this one. Look at this one. And they're piling up and these things are coming towards you and then they jump through you. They can pass through your body and they're running around chirping and singing 
and making these objects. And what they're doing is they are saying, do what we are doing. Do what we are doing. You say, you know, I just want to go back to New York. (laughs) Say, later for that. (laughs) And the implication is, and I'm still, this is the mystery of my life, I'm teasing it out, trying to understand it, but the implication is, and the promise is, that ahead of us in time, six months, 50,000 years, is a visible linguistic channel of communication. That the thin channel of audio communication composed of small mouth noises is just a provisional kind of communication. And what is being proposed in this state is a true telepathy. Now, we always thought, or I always thought, that telepathy means you think, I hear what you're thinking. What it actually turns out to be is you speak, I see what you mean. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean I see what you mean. So that your linguistic intentionality condenses as a three-dimensional object in front of us a sculptural modality. So then we both see what you mean. You made it and I'm your uh, conversational cohort and we're both looking at your meaning. And we can walk around it. We can adjust it. And notice that no common dictionary is necessary here. If you're Witoto and I'm Polish, I still see what you mean. Because what you mean is an objectified three-dimensional modality, not a string of Witoto words. So that, and, and it's saying, do this. Do what we are doing. Well then, I, I, this took me about 15 trips to get this far. And then I began to experiment with sounding in that state. And I discovered that they were right. That, mm, is a three and a half foot wide, eight foot long, magenta curved surface with lime auras. And that mm, shifts the lime auras into rose pink and adds gray silver pinstriping along one edge. And I thought, you know, my God, what is this? So then when you break out into actual chanting, actually linguistically modulated sound, you discover you too can make these objects. And what they apparently are, how this could be, don't ask me, they are apparently a syntactical sculpture. Sculpture made of syntax. Syntax suddenly becomes not the rules that govern spoken languages, but the rules that govern the assembly of three-dimensional thought objects. And uh, as the words were the shadows of hyperdimensional intentions that can actually be broken through to. Well, my God, I just thought this is the weird, this takes the cake. I mean, I've never heard of such a thing. Nobody's ever suggested to me this is possible, so forth and so on. So then, 
as is the case with most things, if you look long enough, you discover precursors. And what I discovered in a wonderful book, and any one of you would love this book, I'm sure, it doesn't deal with the psychedelic experience by name, but it is a psychedelic book. It's called The Phenomenon of Life by Hans Jonas, J-O-N-A-S. And if you can find this book, what a read. It's a group of essays. And one of the essays, he is talking about um, the etymology of the word Israel. And he says, following Talmudic uh, uh, thinkers, that Israel means he who sees God that this is the actual etymological basis of the word Israel. So then, uh, did I say that we're talking now about the writings of Philo Judaeus? Yes. Philo Judaeus, in discussing the etymology of the word Israel, says it means he who sees God. And then he says, what does this mean, he who sees God? Well, as you probably know, in the Hellenistic world, there was this phenomenon called the Logos. And the Logos was an informing internal voice that tells you the right way to live. It's like a, a spirit ally that speaks to you and informs you. So Philo Judaeus said, what would be the more perfect Logos? And then he goes on to answer his own question. He said the more perfect Logos would go from being heard to being beheld without ever crossing over a quantized moment of distinct transition. This is precisely and in fact what is going on in, in these states. Uh, because now I have learned or have found out how to evoke this DMT phenomenon in, a more con in the more controllable environment of the psilocybin intoxication. And it happens like this. First of all, I form the wish for it to happen. I usually follow a, a line I learned in an old I Love Lucy rerun where she's explaining to Ethel how she contacts flying saucers. And she says, I just say, come in, little green men, come in, little green men. So on mushrooms, I do this. I say, come in, little green men. And what begins to happen is uh, this sound like bells, like very distant bells. And then it becomes louder and louder. It's sort of like bells with wind. And it becomes louder and louder and more complicated and more complex. And at a certain very, very hard to precisely define moment, it begins to spill over into the visual cortex. And then I see the language and I can, uh, I can interact with it. Well, it is apparently a more perfect logos. This is what I had in mind in the back of my mind yesterday. Remember when I talked about how smoking was new to Europeans and they couldn't understand what it was and then I made this offhand comment that it was a new use for the human body only 500 years old. Well, it proves that there may be undiscovered uses for the human body. 
I mean, we've only been around playing with our bodies for 50,000 years and we've discovered most sexual configurations and all these acrobatic things and amazing things that people can do like make pyramids of 10 individuals and so forth. But smoking is pretty basic and yet only 500 years old. Well, it seems to me that right under the surface of human neurological organization is a mode shift of some sort that would make language beholdable and that if we could somehow kick over into this alternative mode, we would become unrecognizable to ourselves. Now, I realize this sounds pretty far-fetched, but you always have to have reference to context. In a universe where there were no people, that would be a pretty far-fetched idea. But the fact that we already possess language seems to argue that we are in the process continually of evolving new applications for our bodies and that when language, spoken language, burst on the scene 35,000 years ago, which is most estimates, I mean, think of it, 35,000 years ago, people invented language, what must it have seemed like to them? It must have seemed like a miracle. What, hardly anything sets you up for it. I mean, the difference between a nine-hour recitation of oral poetry and three chickadees on a line is quite a leap. And I'm suggesting that somehow there could be a leap forward in the communication dimension and that this is, in fact, what shamanism is all about, what the end of history is all about, what psychedelic drugs are all about. We are edge-walking on an ontological transformation of what it means to be human. And the, the mode that this transformation will come in, it will not be political or technological. It, is, it isn't starflight. It isn't socialism. It's a whole other way of making our minds known to each other by being able to show each other our minds. And in psychedelic states, you can do this. Yeah. Any relationship to the uh, Australian Aboriginal belief that the world that the forefathers actually sung the world into being that the song that whole, that concept doesn't seem too far off. That's right. Well, yes, as you say, in our own tradition, in Principio et Verbum et Verbo caro factum est, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. That's the whole story. What we need to do is pass through this transition and make the word flesh. In other words, objectify the word. Somehow the word... And I, believe me, I, I talk about these things, but the pictures are provisional. I don't understand how it could be done. I mean, I'm an engineering type on one level. Is it an acoustical hologram? How in the world could I make you see a concept in my mind as though it were hovering three feet above the floor? Is there a way? And I've noticed on psychedelics, and again, I, I don't know whether this is a false 
trail or whether this is part of the mystery. But I've noticed on psychedelics that if you get it, um, a candle, if you get a person between yourself and a candle so that you have them in profile and they are raving and you can see the candle past them, there's something coming out of their mouth. It's like, um, you know how when you agitate oil in water and you see the swirling oiliness of water or when you're in a swimming pool with too much suntan lotion in it, there's this kind of roiling uh, discontinuity in it that's fairly subtle. Well, something like that is middle of my field of vision and I'm just watching them and they stop dead these two people they must be 500 yards away 1500 feet away over these rolling green lawns they stop dead and then they scan and then they start toward me and I cannot believe my eyes that these people have changed course 90 degrees and are now headed right for me and they and I kept telling myself it's a hallucination it's a an illusion they are not getting larger in your field of vision you are not going to have to confront these people please god make it so <laughs> no reprieve they're just getting larger and larger and larger until and so I said I'm going to make this go away by not looking and I'm just going to sit like this and I sat like this not moving until the guys feet entered my field of vision and then I just and then I didn't move and I didn't say anything and then I just looked up and he said you're from which place <laughs> you have been how long in India and it was the grilling which any Indian tourist knows any citizen of the subcontinent can approach you any time of the day or night anywhere demand to know your name how long you've been in this country and then the kicker and what do you think of India <laughs> and this question is asked for the specific purpose of observing your discomfiture <laughs> because they know damn well what you think of India. And uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I just, I looked up and I gave this guy my most penetrating gaze and I said, I cannot be interrogated. And then I just put my head down <laughs> and waited. I don't know, an hour? And when I looked up, they were gone. But uh, only in that circumstance of being so stoned would I have ever behaved that way because the normal tourist reaction is, and they watch this happen to you, you just go into a tailspin of it's their country, everybody's a person, I'm a stranger, I should be nice, they're harmless, What's so bad about this anyway? And then, you know, and so then you, you pair it out. You explain, I'm from San Francisco, California. I've been here three months, so forth and so on. A friend of mine told me a funny story about taking the Bombay, Calcutta mail and arriving in Calcutta on this train four o'clock in the morning and he gets off the train and there's a little sadhu man over there 
and the guy starts toward him and comes up to him and my friend said wait a minute before you say a word my name is Nathan Jones I'm from Brooklyn New York I've been in India three and a half months and I hate it <laughs> and the guy said Oh, you're a great Baba. You're reading my mind. You're reading my mind. <laughs> you got to be fast. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Uh, over, the, over the last couple of days, you, you've said that the mushroom basically creates its own agenda. You've also given an example of how you've directed it. So which of those is true? And if you can direct are there ways to direct it to specific regions by doing specific things. What kind of a region? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, okay, well the first thing is do the mushrooms have their own agenda? And second of all, if, if you have some control over it, how do you get to where you want to go? Uh, whether you want to deal with certain issues like death or the body or whatever, or to get to certain regions of, of consciousness. <coughs> Well, it has its own agenda in that it has this, it, it has certain qualities, this extraterrestrial outer space, a planetary, history is ending, apocalypse, millennia kind of thing. You can uh, direct it if it likes the way you're going. It's sort of like a, a very a, a strong horse. You know, if you're going the way it wants to go, you're fully in control. Uh, otherwise, not. Uh, I mean, I can remember situations with mushrooms where I hadn't taken it for a long time and I fall into confusion and it usually revolves around, am I doing the right thing? Whatever the right thing is. So then I'll take mushrooms and wait until properly... So, and then put this question... Am I doing the right thing? And uh, it, it, it reminds me of uh, a um, press conference that Lyndon Johnson had once, shortly after he became president. Somebody asked a question that he didn't care for, and he said, what kind of a chicken shit question is that to ask the President of the United States? So, when I go to the mushroom and say, you know, am I doing the right thing? It basically said, what kind of a chicken shit question is that to ask me? <laughs> And I think that was a very good answer. That was what I needed to hear, you know. I mean, are you kidding? <clears throat> so, you know, it can be, you know, my father used to say you can drive a horse to water, but a pencil must be led. And I think that that's sort of the situation uh, with the mushroom. If the question pleases it, it will answer. If the question doesn't please it, you'll, you'll hear about it. And it, it is amazing how it gives people what they need. You know that Rolling Stone song, you don't always get what you want, you get what you need? Uh, I have a friend, dear friend, but arrogant. No doubt about it, this guy is arrogant. He definitely thinks he has his, the truth by the throat in most <laughs> situations. 
and he won't take mushrooms because it gives him such a hard time. You know? I mean, and it says, you know, you're arrogant. You want to know what we do to arrogant people? Because for God's sake, lift it off me. <laughs> so a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of humility. It's a relationship, like to a crusty Zen master or something like that. And it is really like another entity because you cannot predict the answers. I mean, I remember a, a dialogue that I had with the mushroom early on where I said, uh, what are you doing on this planet? And it said, uh, you're a mushroom, you live cheap. <laughs> and so he said, huh. He said, listen, this neighborhood was not so bad till the monkeys moved in. <laughs> To you, it may look like a mess. To me, it was paradise. <laughs> the mushroom is very, very weird. I, uh, I'll tell one more story, then I'll try and get off stories. But And all these stories, why am I doing all these uh, dialogue? Uh, but why am I doing all these ethnic imitations? I'm not sure. There's one in this story, too. I was in Malibu with all these fancy film people. And uh, we went out to dinner. Ralph Abraham was there, too. And uh, there was this French woman there, a film producer. And she was seated next to me at dinner. And before dinner, we had been uh, talking about the mushroom. Or I had been introduced to her as the mushroom man and this and that. <laughs> and she said to me, um, and you'll see why the story I just told relates to this, the story about you're a mushroom, you live cheap. Um, and she said to me at dinner, she said, you say that the mushroom speaks to you, but I do not understand exactly how this works. And I said, well, it's sort of like uh, uh, it has many faces that it can show. Like sometimes it's like uh, the role that Rod Steiger played in The Pawnbroker. And at that precise instant... Steiger shows up at the table to shake hands with everybody and slap a few backs, and then he just drifts off into the recesses of this restaurant. And Ralph Abraham, who was sitting across the table from me watching this whole thing and had heard what I said to this woman, reached across the table to me and said, you see, the mushroom is showing us that it can touch us anywhere, anytime. <laughs> Strange stories. Synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. How do you remember to bring back what you've learned? Oh, that's a good question. That's, a, that's an important question. That's a key question. Um, Roland Fisher, who was a great psychedelic researcher with psilocybin and later <clears throat> retired to Majorca to be Robert Graves' next-door neighbor, coined the phrase state-bounded. This means you can't bring it back. And I'm sure you all have had the experience of dreaming, being caught up in some incredible dream with strange people, foreign countries, exotic costuming. The alarm goes off, and as you stagger out of bed, this is just melting like an ice cube in a blast furnace. And by the time you're out of bed and fully dressed, 
you have nothing, not a shred, not a hint, not a clue. It's absolutely gone. This is a state-bounded memory. Chemically, what's going on is apparently short-term memory transcription is just not occurring. You're having the immediate impression of these things happening, and then it's not, it's not going to disk, so to speak. It just is lost. Yeah? I'm My experience is on reframing is to not to be afraid that I'm, I'm losing what I'm dreaming. You know, in the moment I'm afraid that I'm not getting hold of, I know that's gone. And uh, in training myself in, in knowing everything, and so I'm, I'm, how do you say that? I'm healing uh, my body to remember everything what I'm getting. I'm you know, before having going to bed or you know, I'm taking my dreams as uh, learning. Also, like you know, being learning during the night time, and it's that I'm, I'm telling my body to, if I can, to 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 take everything. So even if I don't know it really consciously the next morning, it's there, and I may experience that it's really there. Sometimes I have just a feeling, and I'm noting down the feeling. I'm trying to just feel it again. And I thought I'm, I'm knowing something happened, and I shifted something tonight, and it was like this and that. And I know that I did my work, also if I don't know exactly what was going on. But it helped me a lot in, in just knowing that my body is so... I have so many possibilities to memorize that will memorize. So I'm I'm not giving air to fear that I'm not memorizing what I'm doing. And the dream is not truly lost in that situation where you wake up and it melts away. And the proof of this, and I'm sure you all have had this experience, is then you go off about your daily business. And then there will be, and it was almost always by coincidence, a, an image, a chance phrase, uh, a view of a street or something, and it will cause you to remember the dream. And once you get a hook into a portion of the dream, if you then work on it, you can probably bring a lot of it out. How this works in psychedelics is if I have an insight or something that I particularly want to remember, uh, first of all, I will say it aloud this is strong imprinting and then the real imprinting is to repeat it a few minutes later and then a few minutes later again and if you can carry it over a number of minutes to several different levels it won't leave you a, a very useful shortcut for this is a tape recorder where if you play the tape of the trip back after the trip you will certain just a phrase spoken will set off a chain of associative recall and you will retain it this way. But to my mind, this is um, one of what shamanic training must really be is mnemonic training. The, if you want to bring the stuff back, you have to train yourself to bring it back. Now, this state-bounded thing, it's important to notice. We talk about how dreams are state-bounded how psychedelic experiences are state-bounded, but what we fail to notice usually is that ordinary reality is state-bounded. I mean, if I were to uh, ask any one of you, what did you discuss with the person you had lunch with yesterday? It's probably very touch-and-go 
to actually put this together. I had lunch yesterday with Richard. We discussed his television transmission system, but that was new to me and therefore easy to retain. And also, Richard and I haven't had thousands of hours of conversation together. But uh, the person we are most familiar with is ourselves. Well, it, I don't know if it works for you like this, but I am, let us say, cleaning my house, vacuuming, doing dishes, making beds, and I'm thinking all the time, thinking. And I understand why Rome fell. I realize what I said wrong to somebody two weeks ago. I recall a telephone obligation that I have to fulfill. I think about things that happened years and years ago. And then the doorbell rings and I go to the door and there's someone there and they say, what are you doing? And I say, nothing. This is because the ordinary state of consciousness is highly state-bounded. We don't... One thing these Buddhists have certainly gotten right is that attention to attention is the key to taking control of your mental life. And for most of it, it's just like a river flowing by. You know, and every once in a while we check to see if the river is still flowing by, but we don't uh, attempt to retain it. So uh, memory training is great psychedelic training. And of course, as I'm sure you know, there were arts of memory in the past. We are very poor memorizers because we rely on technologies to do it for us. But uh, people in the past had all kinds of technologies for allowing them to remember things. For instance, uh, the most common one in use in late antiquity and up through the Renaissance was uh, the memory palace approach. This is where you think of a place, a big place preferably, a place you know well, a school, a hospital, a cathedral, a university, but big, and sit and think about it. Think about how it looks as you go through the main doors and then what you see when you turn to the left and what you see when you turn to the right. Learn this building until you really can command it with reasonable vividness in most situations. Then, if you want to remember something, imagine yourself walking through the front door of this building, turning to your left, and there near the water fountain, you will place an emblem of this thing you want to remember. And then you will go down the hall and around the corner and by the fire extinguishers, you will place another emblem of the next thing you want to remember. Well then, the act of remembering this long list of things is the act of mentally moving through this imaginary building that you know. And when you come to the water fountain, the clue will be there. When you pass the fire extinguishers in your mind, the emblem you place there will be there. Now I know this sounds highly unworkable and unwieldy, but it actually is extremely workable. And, and people like Catullus and Cicero, the great late Roman orators, were able to speak for hours on end uh, with lists of virtues and vices and interconnecting causes and this sort of thing because they were masters of this mnemonic memory palace technique. 
Well, uh, psychedelics are a vivid... This is another one of these things like mantras, yantras, and so forth that works on psychedelics. You can do this. And so when you're on a psychedelic and you have an experience that you want to remember, place it in your memory palace. And the next time you come past that point in your memory palace, <laughs> this, uh, this thing will be there. Now, the other trick is, any of you who are interested in this, the last word is The Art of Memory by Frances Yates, which is a wonderful woman, great <laughs> scholar of Renaissance magic. And uh, the, the final trick is to make the, mem the image extremely vivid. So that, for instance, if you're, if you're about to give a speech to your collegium on uh, the seven deadly sins, well, then one of these sins is lust. I chose the easy one because I can't remember what the other six are. shows you where my problem lies. So you don't, you don't just place the word lust in the memory-keeping spot. You, you place some vivid and shocking image. Yeats suggests the image of a nun lifting her skirts. I think this was a classically suggested one that people were taught to use. Well then, when you come around the corner and meet the nun lifting her skirts, you think, aha, lust. That's the first, and then you go on and so forth. And books, some of the most astonishing products of the medieval engraver's art are these books of what are called emblemata. Emblemata are uh, surreal juxtapositions of things and animal parts and bodies and machines that are memory emblems made as grotesque, surreal, and bizarre as possible in order to make them unforgettable. That, that was the technique. And the surrealists used this very consciously. There is something about the unexpected, the grotesque, and the surprising that is, by almost by definition, memorable. And this will work very well in the psychedelic state as well. If you ask, you know, just like that thing with you, your I Love Lucy, when I did a, uh, the Mushroom Experience, and there were certain issues, certain things I went to that ceremony with on my agenda to be healed from. And one of them was to be released from some of my early Catholic uh, conditionings that I felt were hanging me up. And when I was in the experience, uh, they talked about the Los Niños, the little helpers that would come. And I asked, just like Lucy, I said, I need some help. What can you help me with? And I looked at my hand, and <laughs> the... I mean, how could you forget something like this? The fucking blood started to come out of my hand, and right in the middle of my hand, the, it, this blood came right out of the palm and started dripping. And I'm like, oh, I'm bleeding! You know, it's like, it doesn't hurt. I'm bleeding to death here, and this doesn't even hurt. Yeah, I mean, it was like the whole suffering stuff of what Catholics are conditioned with. And the, I mean, I came to my head with the stigmata, and I looked at my other hand, the same thing was happening, and I was going, my God, this is, I'm feeling this, this crucifixion, you know, thing, and the St. Stephen, and my name is Dinamar, and all, 
and all of this martyrdom shit of subjective, you know, on and on. I mean, you could, you know, I could talk for another 30 minutes about what that, how meaningful that was to me, but uh, talk about, a, you know, if you want an image, you want a vision, ask the mushroom God, give me a vision, I'll give you one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ask and you'll see. I'm interested in the, uh, the legal aspect of this thing. You know, you're talking something about highly illegal. You know, as far as the law is concerned, how do you handle it? Anybody that drives around with a license plate that says NNDMP, you know, I wonder, do you, do you, are you paranoid about it? Obviously not. Um. No, I'm not paranoid about it. Um, if they wanted me, they should have come a long time ago because I was much more vulnerable then. Okay. I sort of covered my ass. Naturally, if you speak about these things, you can't do anything particularly illegal. And I am, uh, perhaps I'm foolish in the sense that we're not, I shouldn't be worried about being arrested, I should be worried about being shot. Uh, if that's how they play the game, then I'm in big trouble because they'll just come and shoot me, and you too if you get into this. But if we actually have a legal system that works, then uh, this is called advocacy, and uh, it's not a crime. Uh, it's an exercise of the first, fourth, and, uh, I don't know, a couple of other amendments to the Constitution. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, you don't get more American than that, said that uh, if you are right, you are a majority of one, and we live by majority rule. My, I don't feel heroic. I mean, it's not false modesty or anything. I don't feel heroic doing this. This is really humdrum to me. I just could not behave any other way because of what I've seen. I mean, this transcends laws. All that is, is uh, it's seen as preposterous. I mean, there are, there are, I believe in universal laws you shouldn't kill people, you shouldn't lie to people, um, you shouldn't uh, inject yourself between lovers. Uh, most cultures, I think, recognize a set of universal laws, but thou shalt not smoke marijuana? Surely the god of Mount Sinai has better things to do than uh, worry about that sort of thing. We have to create a new option all social progress is made by people taking chances. Uh, if I am an anomaly, some kind of dangerous sociopath, then my message will be swamped and lost in the noise of the tumult of the world because there are thousands of messages out there. If, on the other hand, this is a great and important domain of truth, then they are crazy to try and repress it because it cannot be repressed. They have tried to repress it. Oh, Why have they tried to repress it? If, if use of psychoactive drugs is so uh, you know, good for the psyche, why have they repressed it? Uh, they sought to repress it because um, there's something in the Western mind that is very nervous, that gets very nervous when you try to talk about... Um, the uh, bedrock of ontology. McLuhan talked about this. He, he met great resistance and all he was saying was that print 
had created certain kinds of unconscious biases in society in favor of uniformity, linearity, and uh, like that. And, and he was amazed at the violence of the reaction against this. And he concluded that those cultures that have evolved from the phonetic alphabet are so removed from the stuff of the world as opposed to languages like uh, Chinese or Mayan or something like that, where there is a retention of the image in the written language, that the cultures descended from the phonetic alphabet are extremely paranoid about questions about the nature of reality. And that's what this is really about. The psychedelic issue does not relate to the drug issue at all. I mean, in fact, it's important to make this point. Drugs and psychedelics are not two members of a family. They are antithetically opposed to each other. The pro-psychedelic position is an anti-drug position. Now, how can this be, since we are accustomed to thinking of psychedelics as drugs? Well, it's like this. What is it that we object to about drugs? And I think everybody can agree, maybe not everybody, but most people can agree, we do have a drug problem. I mean, if you live in the inner cities, uh, you see people getting all twisted up behind this stuff. We have a drug problem. So what is it about drugs that we find problematic? Well, I think that what is objectionable about drugs is that they cause uh, unconscious, obsessive, destructive, self or other behavior. Unconscious, obsessive behavior is intolerable because we are conscious people accustomed to injecting choice and meaning into our lives. You cannot have meaning if you do not have choice. This is why we don't have to spend any time at all talking about whether uh, the world is predestined. Because if the world is predestined, then I'm not saying what I'm saying because it's what I want to say. I'm saying what I'm saying because I can't say anything else. And you're sitting there because you can't not sit there. So it makes the world very dull and uninteresting. Compulsive, unexamined, obsessive behavior is the quintessence of, of anti-human behavior. It was Bertolanffy, the founder of general systems theory, who said, people are not machines. Some of them are drugs which reinforce obsessive be an unexamined and self-destructive behavior patterns. Well, what do psychedelics do? They destroy behavior patterns, destroy cultural assumptions, completely hold everything up for grabs, completely throw open the possibility that reality could be any of a number of ways that are not culturally sanctioned. So, so in that sense, the psychedelics are almost the answer to the drug problem. And the early, the early use of psychedelics reported spectacular progress with alcoholism. Well, now see, the people who believe that alcoholism is a disease, and I don't follow this literature closely, it seems to me this is a preposterous statement. I mean, a disease? You mean like influenza and smallpox and AIDS? Alcoholism is a disease? 
can you get it if you don't practice safe sex or do you have to wash your eating utensils? It isn't a disease. What it is, is it's a uh, failure of self-image. And the reason LSD in many cases had a tremendous impact on alcoholic behavior was because it just showed people what they were doing. said, this is you. You're a drunk. You're a burden to your family, a bore to your friends. You smell bad and you're useless. How do you like it? <coughs> and so somebody said, I don't like it. I said, well, then stop drinking. That's what it is. That's how psychedelics cure addiction. And uh, nobody, when they talk about addiction, nobody ever talks about what is called self-restraint. There's a new book that came out about a month or two ago. Incredibly, con- I don't remember the name offhand. Incredibly controversial. But alcoholism. Yeah, about alcohol- heavy drinking. Myth of alcoholism. Is the, right. Yeah, and it, the man takes the position that the last 30 or 40 years, where we've seen alcoholism as a as a disease, is just you know more bullshit from the medical model. We need a, another alternative. <laughs> of course, AA and everybody's just up in arms about the book. Well, yeah, AA has. I don't remember now. They, they're. What did you say? The, the name of the book is uh, by it's by Finnegrad. It's called right. "Heavy Drinking: The Myth of Alcoholism as a Disease." Basically, it discusses the fact that uh, it's eventually it's a rationalization to say that it's a disease. I mean, there are certain people I think that have some, certain chemical reactions to alcohol, but they're in the minority. And that um, this is very important to me as well because this is work that I'm interested in. And um, alcoholism has also touched my family, as it has a lot of the families. And yeah, I, I think, think the, you know, it's, the it's disease model yeah. has no, there's no responsibility involved, you know. And uh, AA, their position, their goal is not to understand the nature of the universe. They're not in the philosophy business. They're trying to get people to stop drinking. So to maximize that goal... I think that they go far overboard. First of all, all substances, they say, you, if you're an alcoholic, then you must forswear everything. Uh, I don't know how they relate to tobacco. But see, what you've got to understand is we are uh, set up for addiction. It's just like language and cognition and all of these other things, we are the animal which addicts. Other animals don't addict. And addiction is a way of relating to the world. We don't not only addict to drugs, we addict to each other, to chunks of territory, to behavior patterns. Exactly, it's attachment. We attach to everything. Uh, I And it's very real. It's physiological. I remember uh, years and years ago, uh, uh, a woman left me for a homunculus. <laughs> and um, I was uh, appalled. And it, it became, it became uh, it, I mean, I was like vomiting every four hours, could not sleep would burst into tears in inappropriate situations, of which there were many in my life. And uh, it, 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 heroin withdrawal cannot be worse than that. I mean, are you kidding? Vomiting every four hours? And 
And then one night, in the middle of the night, uh, I, I uh, was just frantic because I, I felt like I, when I was awake, I felt like I wanted to be asleep. When I, was a, when I should have been sleeping, I couldn't sleep. And I was just dragging myself to classes. I felt, you know, this is crazy. I should turn myself in. But they don't have crisis centers for broken hearts. What are you going to do? So, so then, in the middle of one of these bouts, I, I went to the medicine cabinet and this woman who had left me had left all these, these pills there. And I sorted through all these pills and came upon a small bottle of tranquilizers, <laughs> of a, a, a very mild tranquilizer, like Valium or something. Well, I had never taken a Valium. So I said, I'll take half. And uh, I took it and... Uh, the next morning or a few hours later I went out to breakfast and somebody came up and sat at my table and said well how are you coping uh, since Hermione left you and I said who? <laughs> you know I just jerk and, and I, it really gave me respect for tranquilizers I mean I was appalled I was appalled that something so real to me so so much me, half the tab, I didn't care, you know, let him go. And then I realized all the people around me, this is how they deal with emotional crisis. Nobody wants to feel anything. I mean, the, first, the moment that an unpleasant emotion rears its head, people go take Valium or, or something else and cut themselves off uh, from feeling. We addict to people. That's the point of that story. And when they leave us suddenly, it's just like having your heroin taken away and you become a mad thing for months, years sometimes. I mean, I still vibrate from this event and it was 15 years ago. Uh, we addict to territory. This is war, our turf, our land. Now this arises, again, a consequence of agriculture. Before agriculture, nobody had land. It, land was something you walked around on as you migrated behind your herds. Once it was cognized as an object and fixed upon, they were ready to knock the other guy's brains out for setting foot on your territory. We all do this. I mean, we are addicted to caffeine, outrageous caffeine addictions, money, sugar, Praise, television. Now, this is the favorite one to talk about because television is a forerunner of very insidious drugs to come. It's just the crudest and the first. Uh, but imagine if after World War II, a drug had been introduced into this country of right-thinking, hard-working, decent Christian people such that 20 years after its induction, the average American citizen would be spending six and a half hours per day involved in this drug. That's the figure for television consumption in this country. The average American watches six and a half hours a day of TV. It is an electronic drug. It is an obsessive behavior pattern, an unconscious 
behavior pattern and a physically destructive behavior pattern. I mean, it's done more for the rebirth of uh, hemorrhoid specialists than any other single force in our society. So, uh, but people say, well, that's not a drug, that's entertainment. Six and a half hours a day of entertainment? You know, before electronic media, a person could regard themselves as a great patron of, uh, let's say, the musical community, and maybe they would hear 12 live musical performances a year when they would go to a theater. I mean, how many, how many people in Beethoven, how many experts on Beethoven in his generation or the generation following heard let's say, the Ninth Symphony more than several times in their intellectual life. Because, you know, you have to get a lot of people together and cooperating to perform the Ninth Symphony. We, to us, the Ninth Symphony is an object. Listen to it. Listen again. Listen again. We are able to turn experience, we are able to objectify experience and then addict ourselves to it. Well, is this bad? How can it be bad if it is so written into us? Uh, I don't think it is bad. I think what we have to do is choose our addictions, choose our behavior patterns. I mean, one can choose to be addicted to punctuality. I'm accused of this. Other people are addicted to always being late. One can be addicted to... Um, you know, meaningless sexual encounters. You mean uh, because of the physiological angle? Well, I think that's been much overplayed. I think, uh, I mean, should we not fall in love because we pheromonally lock together with this person and become a single unified set of drives and uh, goals. Uh, the physiological aspects of addiction have been, I think, uh, very strongly overdrawn. I, I smoke cannabis every day at most opportunities and have for years and years, I mean, since I was 18 years old, every once in a while I stop just to see what that's like. It's trivial. It's utterly easy. All that happens is a shift in behavior patterns. I read more. That's what happens when I stop smoking uh, cannabis. And yet I'm supposed to be breaking out into cold sweats, wandering aimlessly through the streets of the city, staring up at lighted windows. Uh, yeah, right. So I think we give each other too much permission to be weak in this area. What is never talked about in talk about addiction is self-restraint. I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, just take hold of yourself. Yeah, responsibility. And if you tell people addiction is a disease, addiction is it's because you're black, it's because you're poor, it's because you're this, it's because you're that, you have just given them a whole bunch of reasons not to take responsibility for their own situation. And what is needed in these addictive situations, I think, is the shock of recognition. Uh, I believe, see, that if you don't take drugs, you're unbearable. 
and there's no I can't think of a society on earth where people don't take drugs that any of us would want to have anything to do with I mean let's take Calvinist Geneva say I imagine that as an example of a fairly of an environment of moral rectitude. I mean, these people uh, did not wear bright colors, didn't listen to music, never drank coffee, never smoked, forget about alcohol, sex for procreation, so forth and so on. And they were our paradigms of uh, the male ego frozen in in place, didactic paternalistic, uh, uh, all-knowing, filled with hellfire and damnation. Everything is seen in terms of a moral dimension that makes impossible demands on the human animal. Uh, Rather, I think what we should realize is that somehow our evolution into a civilized, self-reflecting being is caught up in these synergistic relationships that our conscious mind has with various things in the environment so that we should choose our addictions. Now notice that addictions, uh, to my mind, and you know you can argue with this if you want by choosing extreme examples, but addictions to natural substances are harmless. Let me name some natural substances that you might disagree with me on this point. I think probably the the strongest one would be people would say, well, what about opium? Surely this is the scourge of mankind. Actually, opium was never a problem in human populations until it was conceived of as a problem by British colonial policymakers who decided that they could manipulate the opium trade to get an entree into China. Uh, um, Alcohol was never a problem, particularly, until the discovery of distilled alcohol. Uh, And, of course, heroin is distilled opium. Morphine also. Um, Sugar is a refined vegetable substance. It's every, in every case, it has required the intercession of science and technology to take harmless habits and turn them into dangerous addictions. So that, uh, you know, everybody has a solution to the drug problem. I think what I would suggest is something called the Vegetable Drug Act, where you just say, if it's a vegetable, it's not a drug. This is, was the position until very recently in, with British common law. In Canada, mushrooms were legal. Mushrooms aren't psilocybin. Psilocybin is a refined chemical. Uh, if it is technology which allows us then to create these super powerful addicting substances and there will be more and more of them downstream, you may be sure. So I think what we need to do is think of human beings as hardware, as the the computer, if you will, and drugs are forms of software. And the software that you run determines the kind of functions that you can perform. If you you run uh, distilled alcohol software, 
Well, then you take on the persona of the alcoholic. Uh, I believe that cannabis is probably the most harmless and benign uh, drug around. It, it carries out this feminizing that I talked about. It lowers the profile of the male ego. Instead of wanting to duke it out, people just say, well, if that's your thing, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and uh, that's what we need, you know. I mean, that practically boils down to what we call tolerance. Uh, so I think that uh, this disruption of our relationships to, um, to psychoactive plants is what set us on the long, hard, downward path into neurosis. And it began with agriculture, with the narrowing of our spectrum of plant awareness from many, many plants down to uh, the rye, the oats, the barley. And it's interesting that then out of this came uh, the cultivation of, uh, I mean, I think beer preceded wine. Beer is an older thing than wine. That comes out of the fact of having created surpluses because the way, the way beer was discovered was through the fermentation of grain that was stored. If you didn't have surpluses, you would never discover the psychoactive properties of fermented grain. It's very interesting in Nepal, the um, the uh, Newari people have an alcoholic beverage that when it's put in front of you, it looks like a bowl of granola. It's dry. They pour it out of a sack into your cup and you say, you know, this is beer? And then they come along with boiling water and pour it over it and then you get this foamy, lightly fermented, contaminated grain water. And to my mind, that clearly is then how fermentation of grains and production of alcohol was established. Notice that it was also the accumulation of surplus from the agricultural adaptation that creates the need for defense. Because now you've got a surplus now you have to guard your surplus from everybody who doesn't have any. The other thing that creation of surpluses caused was uh, the invention of uh, barter and money and this sort of thing because now you have something that you can trade for something that you don't have. So all of these adaptations also, a nomadic people cannot move a grain surplus with them. So if you're harvest one year, if you're a semi-nomadic people, that's a people who, like in the Amazon, they plant things and then they leave them and go away and they have like a yearly peregrination and when they come back to that place a year later, there's all this food ready for them. Well, imagine a nomadic people who were... Uh, doing that kind of quasi-agriculture with cereal, and then there's one year of great weather and great rainfall, and when they arrive at their little wheat patch, so much wheat has been produced that they can't move it. They can't take it with them. So then they say, well, we in, we, but we have food now, so we don't have to keep hunting, so let's spend the winter here. 
And this interruption of the cycle of nomadism to deal with unexpected surpluses obviously spawned the idea in people's minds, well, wouldn't it be great if we had surpluses every year? And then that says, well, that won't happen if we're as careless as we have been about our sowing and harvesting, but maybe if we're very careful and till the land and carefully plant and do careful weeding, we'll have to stay here and weed, but then we'll get this tremendous payback in the end. So, uh, to my mind, the invention of agriculture broke our relationship to uh, the wild plants and the lowered profile of the male ego and set us on a path of defending wealth, creating fortifications, uh, supporting more specialization, larger populations, so forth and so on, and from there to the present predicament, it's only a moment. Pardon me? Lots of consequences from that too, such you know, the fear of losing your wealth, then consequences fighting. That's right. And also this idea of our land because you want to hang on to this good cereal growing land so it's yours you say and then you put a wall around it and then you defend it and so forth and so on. Well, uh, yeah. What do you see the dog? What do you see the nature of the tradition that we've Well, I think that we're now, things are very far out of hand and we're caught up now in the end game of history and that we are going to uh, have to create a way out of this impasse that is probably going to mean a complete redefining of who we are and how we relate to each other and space and time and life and death. And it appears that technology is now the thing that is guiding us forward. We are not being led into the future by politicians. Politicians are running frantically along behind the wagon of history, trying to jump onto it. What is leading us, what's pulling the cart is technology. And I think technology is the program of realizing the practical concerns of the imagination and that really where we are headed is the imagination. It's a place. I don't know whether it's in solid state circuitry or in the bones of the planet or in artificial arcologies in deep space. The future will figure out the details, but we are close enough to it now that we can anticipate it. It's what the shamans always said was possible, a world of value and meaning uh, lived in the light of nature. And I think if we can get through this narrow neck that rationalism has imposed upon us and overcome these poisonous uh, paternalistic uh, philosophies, we will return. That's why I call it the archaic revival. It's the myth of the eternal return. History is something that you finish with as quickly as possible and then return to the archaic mode of eternity. 
And uh, I think that's the adventure that we're all caught up in. That's the agenda that the plants and the planet have always had in front of them. It's just that we wandered away from an awareness of what was happening by deluding ourselves with our own uh, inflated self-image. You know, uh, man as master of woman and nature. And this distorted part of our self-image has now become so dangerous to us that we have to abandon it. We have to draw back from it. And under that kind of pressure, I think we will. So, harking back to another question, the reason I do this and the reason I don't feel any great trepidation about it is because I believe that uh, historical momentum is with us. This is what is destined to come to be. We are going to take control of who we are by taking control of the physiological and psychological foundations upon which the self rests. And that means the chemical re-engineering of ourselves into the state of Edenic innocence that was lost when we set out on the long trail uh, of, uh, you know, the sword and the hoe, basically. That's it. End of weekend. Thank you very, very much. Um, it's a political point of view, you see. And uh, as a practical matter, there's no better way to succeed in politics than to champion the most out-of-it point of view. And now we live in an era where beige fascism is apparently the rising rule of the day. Well, that means if you want to be on the cutting edge, you have to embrace something very akin to psychedelic anarchy, the absolute antithesis of the fascist state. And then you will participate in the turning of the tide and the vindication of this point of view. And it will be vindicated, there's no doubt about it. All other points of view are bankrupt on the face of them. And a footnote. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I've now learned that uh, even if you have had a certain experience before, it may not be anything like that the next time you use the same substance. One of the things I've been trying to do to uh, make sense of some of these experiences is to use the technique that Ann Shulgin talks about uh, relative to our dreams. And that is to uh, not get hung up on the details of what happened, but rather focus on the emotions that come up as the result of your dream or as the result of a psychedelic experience. How did it make you feel? That's what I want to know. That's something we can talk about because there's simply no way, uh, at least right now, for us to uh, share those intense internal visions that sometimes show up. Another thing I'd like to comment on is uh, what Terence was saying about using a tape recorder on your journeys. I've done that for a long time now, and while there isn't anything on them that would make the least bit of sense to you, when I hear one, uh, even from ten years ago, I can bring back huge pieces of that trip. And in some cases, my uh, descriptions of the visual patterns I was seeing can even bring those back to me. So, if you haven't tried that yet, you uh, might want to consider it. After all, uh, hey, what's the point of going down into the mine if you aren't going to bring any ore back? But to tell the truth, that's uh, all too much of a heavy trip for me to even think about right now, and uh, so uh, I think we ought to move on. In fact, uh, to lighten things up a bit right now, I'd like to play a short song that was written and performed by fellow Saloner, Trannon Global. And uh, after we listen to it, I'll, of course, uh, have to add my own two cents about it. So uh, here's uh, Trannon's song right now. Well, I was born in April But I left my heart with the hippies back in 1969 Tied-eyed shirts and psychedelic tears put a smile upon my face It's a shame that I was born 30 years too late Wish I could have been on board the magic bus with Ken And all those merry pranksters, what fun it would have been What I would have given to see old Timothy Leary smile While tripping out on LSD in a Millbrook country When I find myself going down the road and feeling bad, I just turn up to them and space out to the songs of the grateful dead. It's a mystery I should have known, a history of fate. The shame that I was born 30 years too Gone to San Francisco with a flower in my hair. Could have danced in a rain and would stop while a pot smoke filled the air. It's a shame I wasn't at Monterey to see the airplane fly or to be in at the beginning neath the California sky. When I find myself going down the road, feeling bad, I turn up to men and space out to the songs of the grateful dead. It's a history I 
Well, thanks for that, Trannon, and uh, I want you to know that it most definitely reminded me of the vibe in our college dorm room back in the 60s. But here's my take on how things are today, and uh, that is uh, not that you were born 30 years too late. I'm here to tell you that I was born 30 years too soon. Having lived through uh, what the rose-colored glasses of history paint as a long, happy party... I have to tell you that uh, none of my friends from those days would want to go back to that time, and uh, neither would I. No, from where I stand, uh, the 60s were just the preface, the preamble to what is now underway. Had we had the World Wide Web back then, uh, I think we would be living in a completely different world today. So, what did a lot of those disillusioned hippies do? Well, they dropped a lot of acid, and then they went out and created the Internet that you see in all its glory today. But now that we have all of our tech in place, uh, we find that we're wearing out just when things are really falling into place and getting interesting. If I was only 30 years younger, many of us lament. And uh, so your song strikes a real chord when you think about it from that perspective. Why are we all wishing for something that can't be when right now, right here in the eternal present, we've got more going for us than anyone could even dream of in the 60s? So now I'm looking for a song that lets the world know that the next 10 years or so are going to make the 60s look like the 50s. Because, uh, at least in my humble opinion, 10 years from now we're going to be living in a completely different world. And I I think it's going to be one that is uh, considerably more fun than the current one. But getting off my soapbox and on to another announcement, and uh, this one comes from fellow saloner and contributor Jason Hendrickson, who says... Hi, Lorenzo. I have recently been volunteering for Mitch Schultz, producer-director of DMT, The Spirit Molecule. As you are probably aware, this is a documentary still in production based on the research and book of Dr. Rick Strassman, who is also a producer on the project. The film is still in need of funding, and they recently got approved for non-profit status, which allows contributions made to be tax-deductible. They also are offering a film credit to anyone who contributes at least $100. The following link takes you to the donations page. And I'll put that uh, with the program notes, but it's uh, Cottonwood Research. All one word, cottonwoodresearch.org. And uh, you can find the project's link, and uh, that project will be listed there. And uh, Jason goes on. I was hoping you might mention this on the salon or post a notice on your page. As I am sure you would agree, this film could be mighty powerful propaganda for the good guys in our lifetime quest for mainstream legitimization of the psychedelic experience. Thanks very much, and I hope you are enjoying the summer. Best regards, Jason. Well, thanks for sending that, Jason, and uh, I will post a link on our blog along with the program notes for today's podcast. I'm sure that many of our fellow slaughters have uh, read Dr. Strassman's book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And if you haven't, I highly recommend it. As you most likely know, it was the groundbreaking research by Dr. Strassman that 
finally broke the logjam holding back psychedelic research in this country. And thanks to his hard work, there are now a dozen or more major psychedelic research projects underway. I know that isn't much, but before Rick Strassman so boldly forged ahead, there were none at all. So uh, if you can help this project along, even uh, just by posting links to it on your own site, uh, that would be quite helpful. Another email comes from longtime Slaughter Chris S., who says, Hi, Lorenzo, this is Chris. I sent you the TimeWave Zero software a while back, just to let you know who this is. Anyways, I just watched a promotional video for 2012 The Movie that is coming out with Woody Harrelson playing some guy named Charlie Frost. And he references Terrence without actually saying his name. I was just waiting for him to say it, but no go. Anyway, here it is. And uh, I'll put that link out uh, on the website, too. It's one of those esoteric uh, YouTube uh, links that you can't spell out. And he mentions that uh, Woody starts talking about uh, Terrence at about the 53-second mark. Anyway, uh, that's uh, quite an interesting clip, Chris. And I see exactly what you mean. But uh, for now, I'll reserve my comments about this film until I learn a little more about it. But I, I have to admit that if this clip is representative of the movie, I probably won't be watching it. But seeing the clip out of context uh, may not be too fair to the film or to Woody. I'll be anxious to see if any uh, buzz develops about it over on the forums at thegrowreport.com, where, uh, by the way, there's uh, an extremely interesting thread on the Psychedelic Salon forum about suffering. And uh, I think that might be worth checking out if you have the time. Okay, I guess I can't put this off any longer. It's time for another Burning Man announcement. Now, if you aren't going to the burn this year, then this probably won't be of any interest to you. But for our fellow Saloners who are going to be setting up camp on the playa this year, I've got some bad news. After all of the wild hoopla that Bruce Damer and I created about our gigantuan McKenna and Leary extravaganza at this year's burn, well, we're going to have to cancel it. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons for this, but the bottom line is that uh, due to both of us having some unexpected changes in our lives, uh, neither of us, and for different reasons, aren't going to be able to make it to Burning Man this year. But don't worry, it's uh, nothing serious in either of our cases, uh, just some things that are taking a lot of time and resources from us. And uh, for what it's worth, we haven't completely abandoned the Leary and McKenna project. In fact, uh, we've decided to develop the concept a little more slowly, and uh, we might even take it on the road to some uh, more manageable venues, uh, like local theaters or college campuses. And then uh, hopefully we'll eventually get it to Burning Man once we get it fine-tuned. As you may guess, uh, it hasn't been easy to make this decision, and... For our fellow Saloners who are still making plans to attend this year's burn, I really wish there was some way to make it up to you. So far, the only idea I've come up with is this. In a few weeks, I'll be introducing a new website to support my novel, The Genesis Generation, and it's going to be much like Dig, but with the ability for you to organize your own groups of friends. So I've set up a Burning Man 2009 group that is restricted to fellow Saloners who are actually attending this year. And uh, hopefully uh, through that you might be able to coordinate some meeting places and uh, things like that. I've set it up so that only those going will actually see the discussions going on uh, until you want to make them public. But uh, how do you get in, you ask? Well, simple. I'll take your word on it if you just send me an email to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. That's all one word, matrixmasters. 
And uh, let me know that you'll be going to this year's burn, and I'll send you the password and link to get in. I know it isn't much, but uh, maybe it will at least help a few of our fellow slaughters find a couple more of the others. And I, I guess I should also mention that uh, I've got a ticket for sale if anyone needs one. I got it in the uh, Tier 2 bracket, which means that, uh, including fees and postage, it cost me uh, $256.75. So if you know somebody looking for a ticket uh, and uh, that price is right for them, just uh, tell them to send me an email to the address that I just gave, and uh, it's first come, first served. Oh, and uh, a special thank you to our fellow saloners who made posters for our contest that never actually got off the ground, and... I'll be in direct contact with you and uh, see what we can do to get your work seen anyway. Well, I don't like ending on such a downer, but this has already gone on for too long. So I'll try to get another happier podcast out before uh, a week goes by. And just to let you know, it's going to be the beginning of a Tim Leary workshop that he held in 1985. Well, that does it for now. And so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that This and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.